Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. Chicago now has a roadmap to recovery from the health and economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. International students are reeling from new federal guidance that they must take at least one partially in-person class to remain in the U.S. this fall. This is the Trump administration urges all schools to open in the fall amid dramatically increasing cases of COVID-19. We all want to do what is in the best interest of our children, and that's got to be dictated by the public health guidance. We're in July We don't know what's going to happen in September. That's right. We talk about the stories of the week and all the other big news that went down in Chicago and Illinois. Joining us today in the roundup, WBEZ government and politics reporter Dan Mialopoulos. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Good. Also with us, Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. Laura, welcome back to WBEZ. Great to be with you. Always great to talk with you. All right, so let's get into this week. We got a lot to talk about. The U.S. hit another grim milestone, 3 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus. Dan, we're seeing spikes in states that reopened early, like Texas, Florida, and California. And we're also seeing an uptick in cases right here in Illinois. Yeah, I think we are seeing a little bit of an uptick. But the thing that's important uh, to remember is that um, it's really the positivity rate with these tests that is what you want to look at. And that is, you know, as you do more tests, you may get more uh, positives, you may get more cases, but what is the rate of people that are testing positive? And it's still very low in Chicago and in Illinois. I think it's in the two to 3% range. Whereas some of these states that you just mentioned that didn't uh, lock down nearly as tightly, if at all, earlier in the pandemic, they're seeing rates close to 20% of the tests that they're putting out there are coming back positive. So I think it's important to put it into context. Let's not get too worried just yet, but it's obviously uh, the direction that we don't yeah. want the state to be going. Well, Laura, we're, here we go. I mean, we're coming up on the two-week moment where, you know, anniversary, I guess, of phase four reopening. So there's going to be a lot of eyeballs next week looking at uh, how the cases and, and how the numbers kind of react to the phase four reopening. Well, there is indeed. And there's actually, you know, eyeballs, I think, in many ways looking at it now. Uh, Dan's right that state and local health officials are saying, don't panic. Um, we, we think we've got this under control. But there are some signs out there. The fact that the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, chose to issue a quarantine starting this past Monday for Chicago for people coming in from those areas. So it, it shows that they are concerned about some of the devastation, the medical devastation that's going on in other states, that we don't want to get infected with that. To uh, the Lake, Lake County, I think it's having a little, little bit of a, an uptick, particularly in terms of cases among young people, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense given that bars and restaurants are opening up and the young people in general have seemed to be not as uh, concerned about uh, being uh, taking precautions maybe as some older folks are. And then thirdly, uh, the, the city issued a curfew uh, overnight on bars and restaurants serve liquor in Chicago. Again, that I think that that is aimed primarily at young people. There's a concern that uh, people who are drinking, people who are younger may tend to be uh, maybe more reckless. So these these are all measures that I think that rightly so that state and local officials are getting ahead of the game on to try to, if there's something coming, to try to head it off as much as we can. Yeah, and, and Dan, I would just, I'd I wonder about, you know, when you start talking about curfews and, and saying that bars can't be open past 11 or 12 or whatever it is, 
you know, the the bar owners just have to roll their eyes again and say, geez, we cannot win by reopening and actually making a living. Right. But the reality is when you look at these scales of which activities are the most likely to spread COVID-19, bars are way up there. And so are churches, by the way. I'm not making a moral uh, judgment here in any way, but these are definitely um, riskier activities. Uh, there's more information coming out about how the virus may linger in indoor environments. Uh, obviously, it's been um, much safer to sit outside at patios, and you can do that in the summer, although it's often too hot um, or raining. Yeah, right. But um, there are a lot of patios. A lot of people all over town and all over the suburbs are putting up these tents, uh, bars are more limited in their ability to do that, being open later at night, maybe in residential areas. Yes, I do feel for them, but the reality is bars are, are probably not where you really want to be if you don't want to get COVID-19. Yeah. You know, this yeah, week, yeah, that's absolutely, Justin, and I think, I think Dan's absolutely right. And come on, I don't want to be unsympathetic to the business owners, but we're talking about a midnight curfew for restaurants to serve alcohol. They had to stop serving at 11. Uh, they have to stop selling drinks to, do, to go at nine. I don't think that that's unreasonable. I think they can still make plenty of money and still do plenty of business up till midnight. Yeah. This week, uh, our governor, Governor J.B. Pritzker, uh, went to Washington virtually. <laughs> he called on the uh, on the president to issue a national mask mandate. It was part of his testimony to the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security. Here's a clip of that. We need a national masking mandate. We instituted ours in Illinois on May 1st, one of the first in the nation, and it aligns with our most significant downward shifts in our infection rate. It's not too late for the federal government to make an impact. In fact, it's more important than ever. That clip and that that kind of was pulled out, but that whole testimony, which was was pretty short, was really just about the failings of Donald Trump and the and the White House when it comes to the, the coronavirus plan. It seems once again that J.B. Prisker is taking the lead uh, politically on on being sort of the chief and in, in criticizer of the White House. Yes, Prisker's uh, uh, role has been from the very beginning not only to try to protect Illinois, but to make the case that the White House and the Trump administration could be doing far more. And in fact, he's many times had to get has has to step forward in terms of getting our own supplies and getting other mandates that, that the federal government is refusing to do. In terms of his, his call to action on mass, I, I think it's a, it's a very valid one, but it's not going to happen for the same yeah, reasons right. that he's been criti- critical of the White House. The White House is very reluctant in to, to issue any mandates that would be national. They want to leave it up to the states, and they're particularly sensitive to protecting some of their allies in places like Florida and Texas that have maybe got out there too, too far ahead and now are paying the price for it. They don't want to reinforce the message that, that, that their allies may be screwed up a little bit, and that that's why we need masks now. So I don't see, I don't see that happening, unfortunately. And, and the other issue, too, is there's just been so, many, so much mixed messaging about masks. You know, even Anthony Fauci at the beginning of this crisis wasn't necessarily suggesting that everyone needs to wear them. Um, now we're hearing, oh, yeah, everyone should wear them. It's, it's, a, a, bit, it's a bit late for that message, and I think it would be hard for that to take yeah. on a national level at this point. Dan, when, when, you know, on one hand, he's saying the federal government has failed. But then he's also saying you got to step up and and give us aid. Are we likely to see that in Illinois? I mean, is it, this is a game of politics, but I mean, I would assume that's not the best message necessarily to get the federal government to dole out aid. Well, not with this president. I mean, this president has made it clear that he's nakedly transactional about stuff like this, that he wants to reward those who praise him and, and sometimes lavish him with praise. I don't know if we, we saw earlier this week 
um, the governor of our neighboring state of Missouri, many people compared it to a, a North Korean government meeting because he was praising uh, the president in such lavish terms. And on the other hand, uh, the, the president has shown himself to be very sensitive to criticism and uh, willing to threaten to punish people who do criticize him. Now, whether that's the case as it rolls down into the agencies that the government of uh, Illinois and other states uh, deal with on, on a daily basis, I think there have continued to be something of a decent relationship yeah. between the states and some of the federal agencies, be they in the Trump administration, um, you know, a lot of times we don't see what he's tweeting or what he's saying really rolling down into into yeah, action true, true. to the federal government. So we might get something. Yeah. Laura, I, I, it is a great transition because uh, President Trump is calling on schools to reopen in the fall, despite the risks that everyone's talking about. Uh, on Wednesday, he, he threatened to cut off funding if schools don't comply. If, if they're physically not open in the fall, he's going to cut off funding. Uh, he also criticized the CDC, his own, his own agency, uh, for guidelines and reopening. They're too tough. They're too expensive. What's your thought on the president taking the lead here? It seems to be out almost a, a, a strange contradiction to the other messages he has about, hey, it's, a, it's up to the states. Well, he's been consistent in the sense that he has been in denial from day one that they, we, we have a big problem. And, you know, he said it, it was just a flu that would go away in a few days. And certainly then later on, it was going to be gone by summer. Well, here we are almost in the middle of summer. And guess what? It's still with us. I think it's a, we have a while to, uh, even though I know the school systems and, and educators have to start to plan now, I think we have a while before any tough decisions need to get made about opening schools. But I think a lot of what he says and does is about messaging and about his, his political philosophy, and it's not necessarily meant to be based in reality, or even maybe he doesn't even expect it to be listened to. Uh, if, if he's talking about cutting off funding to schools if they don't obey uh, his mandate on, on reopening, He's talking about lots of lawsuits that would get tied up in court. So yeah. I think the jury is still out on whether or not this is even enforceable or realistic. But, you know, it's consistent in terms of the Trump's messaging from the very beginning. Yeah. Mayor Lightfoot pushed back on that. She said this decision uh, should be left to the individual school districts. Let's take a listen to that. Making those kinds of decisions has to lie with the local school districts because we and they are the ones that know what's actually happening in local circumstances. So making some broad declaration at the federal level and ignoring the particular circumstances of a locality, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and Dan, the mayor says the announcement on CPS plans should be coming up soon, even though we don't really know when that's going to be. Do you think there'll be any consideration to what the president's saying and how that might actually affect what CPS wants to do since they haven't put out a plan yet? No, no. I mean, <laughs> the, the state didn't consider... Uh, what the president was saying when he wanted to open by um, Easter. Uh, you'll recall that from right, a few right. months ago. It seems like a few years ago. Uh, and I don't think the mayor of Chicago, who has also clashed repeatedly and publicly from the start of the pandemic uh, with this White House, is going to uh, to listen to, to the president at all on this. They've said that they're going to come up with a timeline uh, to open, quote, as soon as it is safe to do so. They do have a little bit more time, as Laura pointed out. I think CPS doesn't open, what is it, the day after Labor Day? Mm -hmm. But there are suburban districts that start as early as August 10th, August 20th. Uh, some of them are already issuing guidelines. Uh, some of them are giving choices uh, to kids to do online learning or come in. All of them are saying that the kids have to wear 
the ones that have announced things are saying that the kids have to wear masks. How enforceable is that going to be, keeping them apart? I mean, these are kids. We all know how kids are. So yeah. very difficult choices for CPS and for um, many school districts around the country. And don't forget the union aspect of it. Yeah, too, because right. It's not just that it's, you know, kids are not as susceptible teachers. to, to COVID-19. The teachers go up to the age of, uh, you know, 65, 67 and older um, if they don't want to take their pension as soon as they can. And so mm -hmm. you have people there and, you know, you have other people who may be younger but have underlying conditions. I, I, I was going to say, and I would also add to, to that long list of the parents, uh, there's going to be pressure from parents who can no longer afford to have their children home and, and be supporting and, and co-educating them along with teachers, especially as they go back to work in the fall. So there's going to be a lot of pressures coming from different directions. It's so complicated when you really start to break it down about how all these this ecosystem kind of plays together. The National uh, Teachers Union said, to you know, in response to the president this week, Something along the lines, go sit in the classroom with a bunch of kids and a teacher in that, and breathe that air in and then come back and tweet something. Like, <laughs> it was a very interesting point to say, you know, anyone who's been in a classroom in a Chicago public school or any school and seen 40 kids in a room and with a teacher and, and uh, inadequate uh, ventilation, it's a real deal in, in terms of concerns about the risks and safety. Absolutely. And, you know, you better believe that Donald Trump's not going to any classrooms, especially because he doesn't want to wear a mask. So forget about <laughs> right, that. Right. All right. Let's get right into your reporting, Dan. Uh, we talked earlier this week about the PPP loans and the data that came from Washington, and you were able to analyze who was getting loans here in Chicago. The idea of what a small business is, it's really expanded. Yeah. I mean, how do you describe a, a small business? The federal government, for the purposes of this program, decided in their wisdom that this half trillion dollar fund would be available to anyone who has less than 500 workers and also it includes nonprofits, you know such as uh chicago public media which operates this station in the interest of full disclosure we should say that it also in includes a lot of religious groups five to ten million dollars to the largest uh, church in the chicago area one of the largest churches in the country willow creek out in the northwest suburbs with uh, seven locations. It's a small business for purposes of this program. And reading today, the Associated Press uh, added up how much different Catholic groups have gotten, and right. it's at least $1.4 billion to the Catholic Church. Laura, these loans were supposed to go to quote-unquote small businesses, and, and for a lot of the, for the most part, they did. But when sure. you read these stories, and you're talking about $5 million, $10 million to megachurches and to uh, every 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 kind of business that we all kind of scratch our head about, I mean, it it, it questions the whole concept. It surely does, because you know. And now, that, now in their defense, these institutions would all say, and I think legitimately so, that they are trying to protect their their employers, their employees. They're trying to keep staff on board. They're trying to keep afloat to, to get through the crisis, and that that's true. But there are many. Many of these "quote unquote" small businesses that are, as, as Dan's uh, story so well points out, that have a lot of clout, have a lot of resources, yep. and have a lot of wherewithal to grab these loans at the expense of much smaller institutions that either don't have the staff, that don't have the expertise or the staff, or the influence to be able to understand and plow through the, these complicated um, applications and, and the whole process. So it, it does basically send a message loud and clear about inequities in America. We've been hearing about inequities as far as health care goes, as far as race goes, and, and as far as you know, economic assets go for, for months now. But this is another example of how if you, if you have, you always get more. And so I think to the average voter who's 
tax money is going toward these, you know, millions and millions of dollars to these small businesses, it doesn't look so good. Yeah, and Dan, you you went into detail on the on the companies and even the the ones that are politically connected. I mean, the red light camera company, Safe Speed, that of course was tied to a federal corruption investigation in Springfield. They got what one to two million dollars in early April. So even when you start to go into the political connections, you start to see a, a pattern of of what we've come to know as as clout or or political clout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Safe Speed. There is a company, an Illinois senator, got up and admitted in federal court, by the way, under um, indictment by the federal government, that he had received. Uh, bribes to do things in Springfield for the red light camera industry. And he mentioned safe speed specifically. That was earlier in the year, right before the pandemic started. Pandemic hits, this law is passed, and who's getting money from the federal government now from a different agency, not from the Justice Department, of course, but from the SBA, safe speed. So, you know, you start to wonder, and then you've got another company like Oberweiss Dairy, which has ice cream shops around the Chicago area owned by the uh, perennial candidate, Jim Overweiss. He's running for the U.S. Congress, and they get uh, millions of dollars for Overweiss Dairy, which uh, to many people would not be a small business either. But also, you know, the irony of free market conservatives now benefiting from, I think, one of the largest interventions in the economy by the federal government since the New Deal. Yeah, right, right. Uh, since we're talking about Springfield, maybe we can make a transition. Uh, news coming out of Springfield, Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan is calling for the removal of Stephen Douglas imagery from the state capitol. Douglas, a former slave owner, he's a late U.S. senator, of course, uh, from Illinois, who famously debated Abraham Lincoln, big part of Illinois history, those, those debates and those campaigns. Laura, what can you tell us about this push? Mike Madigan has, has said he read a book uh, recently that talked about the, the, Douglas, the Douglas history and his connection, his ties to slavery, and some of the very denigrating things he said about African Americans at the time of his. And so he said he felt inspired both because of that and because of the George Floyd crisis to come forward and to say no more. And in fact, he wants to replace uh, that that portrait with a portrait of Barack Obama, uh, the first African American president. So. He's, he's taking some leadership here, which is at a time when there's a huge national debate about whether or not it's appropriate for these uh, historical symbols to remain. Uh, I think there's some, a lot of folks in, in, uh, in Springfield that are waiting for more, though there's been a, also a big debate about many, many inequities in Springfield in terms of the, the, the approach of the legislature, in terms of equities, in terms yeah. of, of funding and, and, and initiatives that come out of the legislature. And Mike Madigan is the guy. He's the stop guy where all of the buck stops. So I think people are going to be looking for more than just uh, responses in terms of symbols in, in Springfield. Well, to, to do that, Laura, they would have to actually convene and, and do work. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would actually have to get, actually get Mike Madigan to come forward and actually have public conversations yeah, right, with people, which right, is also right. not something that happens. Well, I mean, it, it's, it is interesting because I think it, there are a lot of Confederate uh, monuments and and I would say the imagery around slave owners in the state of Illinois. We get a pass because it's a it's, it's kind of known as a blue state, but there are a lot there's a lot of history when it comes to the Confederacy and and those kind of statues and and I think that it's important that we play a role in the state to, to also at least have a dialogue about it. When you think about that and you think about the pushback from the federal government, specifically the president. What's your thoughts on that, Laura, that, that there is this fight and it seems to be taking a, uh, almost too much priority at this time when we need to be thinking about other things? Well, symbols and images and objects always you know, stir people up and make for a lot of water cooler talk. 
I'd like to see more conversation, and I've seen this in some locations, some more conversation around educating people. Mike Madigan said he didn't know the real Stephen Douglas. He didn't know the history. And unfortunately, that's a big shortcoming of our educational system and in our culture is that we don't really understand who these people really were. So, so I would like to see more. Let's not necessarily take them all down, but let's make sure you know we have uh, education programs around them. We have placards. We have uh, other what, efforts to make sure that people understand who these people were and the role they played in the building up or the destruction of racial equity yeah. in this country. Let's turn to the, we're talking about senators. Let's talk about our current senator, U.S. Senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, who is rumored to be on a short list when it comes to uh, the vice president for Joe Biden coming up here. That, that decision will be made coming up probably sometime at the end of this month. But, you know, she's kind of gotten into the, the crosshairs of the right-wing talk show host Tucker Carlson this week. And we heard the clip at the beginning calling her silly and, and saying she hates America. It, uh, let's get into this because uh, Tammy, of course, is, has been a Iraq war veteran. We know this. And she has been uh, someone who I guess this was all about the statues. She said something on one of the shows about we should have a dialogue about George Washington. This got Tucker Carlson's attention. Dan, what do you think of this? What do you think of, of what's happening uh, and where it seems like she's becoming uh, a, a real big topic of conversation in national media? Right. There are some people that are very frequent topics of conversation in national media. Hillary Clinton, years after she lost the election, still seems to come up a lot. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and now Tammy Duckworth has entered uh, the pantheon of the villains for the right wing. The problem is, um, for Tucker Carlson, that he questions her patriotism. She's given both of her legs on the battlefield for this country and she's also very good at getting um her her zingers in too uh where she said that uh tucker carlson should not question her patriotism until she's walked a couple of miles in her legs which are of <laughs> course mm-hmm. prosthetic legs laura it's, uh, it's, so it's, she's, she's yeah. become very adept at getting into it, getting into it and right, giving right. it as, as well as she's getting it this just seems mm-hmm. tone deaf on tucker carlson's part <laughs> well you know and the thing about dan's point about she's been become very adept that's a skill that you're going to need and, and that you're going to need and going to have to have if you're going to be seriously considered as a VP candidate because this is going to be a rough and tumble fall campaign. And I know one of the things that Biden's people are looking at is someone who's been on the national stage, someone who can, who can give and take, and she certainly has proven that. I think that she, the fact that she has risen to this, the, the top of denigration and on Fox News <laughs> and, and from the Trump campaign, which also said some very negative things about her, shows that they – Maybe taking her pretty seriously is a, is a possibility, and maybe they don't like they meaning the Trump uh, operation. Maybe they don't like that idea. Maybe they see her as being a, a formidable VP uh, uh, candidate for Biden. Yeah, I, I, what do you guys think? I mean, is is it the chamber in, in Washington just kind of throwing around names and getting excited about it, or is is Senator I, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois a serious candidate for the vice presidential now? I think it's a possibility. I mean, he said, uh, Joe Biden, that he's going to have a woman running mate. And uh, many people believe that it's more likely to to be an African-American woman. But I'm not sure. I mean, Tammy Duckworth, even before uh, Tucker Carlson set his sights on her uh, this past week, uh, had come up uh, long ago with the uh, private bone spurs uh, moniker of her own for Mm -hmm. uh, President Trump, referring to the malady that he he allegedly claimed to avoid going to Vietnam. And I, I think you make a good point, Justin, when you say that 
She is someone that maybe the White House doesn't want to see as a vice president because the contrast between basically a draft dodger president who wraps himself in the flag and someone who uh, literally fought for the country and was wounded severely, her life changed on the battlefield for the United States of America, is not a contrast that uh, the White House wants out there. So I think that's why they and the media who support them uh, so clearly and so openly um, are attacking Tammy Duckworth. Yeah, now. and Laura, it's, it's it's kind of interesting to watch the rise of Tammy Duckworth because we've known her in Chicago for a long time. She's you know in the House and, and now in the Senate or ran for the House. But she's been around and, and we know her, and it's I think it's exciting for Illinois to see her become more, much more of a, of a national star when it comes to Democratic politics. It's all good for her. It's a win-win no matter what happens because she has used this opportunity to elevate her profile, and she's got a compelling uh, personal story to tell beyond uh, her war service, beyond her injuries. She's a mother. She had her. She had a, a child while she was serving in the Senate. The first time that's ever happened. She comes from a, a very humble background. She's biracial. She's a, a U.S. senator, a sitting U.S. senator, and you you know those are one. That's one category of political professional that's most likely to become a, a president or a vice president. So she checks off a lot of the boxes, and and I think that's one reason why she's really getting a lot of attention now. Yeah. Um, before we go, there are a couple of anniversary stories I want to talk about. Uh, Chance the Snapper, of course, but but more importantly, next week we're going to do a big series on this, Laura. Just the the idea of the the 25th anniversary of the Chicago heat wave. And I know that you were covering uh, at that time, and I think about uh, the, the mid-'90s in Chicago and this story. What's, what's your recollection of, of the Chicago heat wave as, as we get ready to celebrate uh, a horrific uh, anniversary 25 years later? Well, in some ways, it's deja vu all over again in the sense that the heat wave kind of came out of nowhere. It was a natural disaster that we weren't prepared for, that the city wasn't prepared for. And it wasn't until, you know, weeks in or months in even that we really understood the gravity and the impact that it had. Fast forward to 2020, and we we, we have COVID-19, which both of those disasters have raised tremendous consciousness around racial, social, economic disparities, as you will recall from the heat wave. Many of the people that died and suffered most were people of color, elderly people. You're seeing the same people who, who had were facing a lot of health challenges. You're seeing the same thing now. So in some ways, it's deja vu. But in other ways, I, I hope that, and I, I'll be curious and looking forward to hearing your series, hope that there are some lessons that we have learned coming out of that experience that maybe made us better equipped in terms of ha- handling COVID-19. And I know there's been a lot of challenges in the, in the nursing homes, but I think that in many ways the city did a pretty good job in terms of being aware of those folks who were most vulnerable and making sure they got the resources and support to those folks before it was too late, as yeah. it was in the case of the heat wave. And maybe that's it, Dan. Maybe it's about awareness. Maybe the disparities are all, are, are there, and they and that's, that's something that's problematic that it's been 25 years, but maybe it's about the administration's awareness that the disparities are there. Well, and awareness that something like this could happen, which I think was lacking uh, in 1995, from from what I've read, at least. I was uh, uh, still in college at that time, and I know that one of my projects um, was to uh, devise some sort of system to check on the elderly, just literally to just check on them because so many were found isolated and suffering and, and dying. Uh, 700 deaths. So there are disparities, but there wasn't an awareness at that time that something like this 
uh, could really happen. Um, many of the city's leaders were were not around. They were on vacation. And um, I think that if you start to see anything remotely like this, they will uh, snap to attention at City Hall very, very uh, rapidly. Hey, Laura, remember, I, I remember in, in the documentary, the, the I think it was called Cook Survived by Zipco, the Cartempuin documentary that came out, had a bunch mm-hmm. of clips of Daly, Mayor Daly at the time, kind of chuckling it off and saying, we're Chicago, we're tough, we love weather. Like, he really kind of took that statement. Instead of pointing out what was happening in, in the city, he, he kind of acted like, it's a snowstorm, we'll all we'll do dibs. Like, it, was very, <laughs> it was a very strange way, looking back on it, to see how he reacted. And remember the last mayor that did that was Michael Balandic, who kind of slept off the, the, the snow disaster, and, 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 it, and it led to his, in the late 70s, and it led to his removal from office. So, again, did uh, Mayor Daley learn that lesson, or are politicians going to have to continue to learn it over and over again? I think that this mayor, Lightfoot, has taken the, uh, the current disaster seriously from the very beginning. It's going yeah. to be interesting to see how Daley would have handled it. And, Dan, just, uh, and I kind of joked about it, but the other anniversary story, Chance the Snapper, yeah. this is the alligator that was, <laughs> or crocodile, I forgot which one it was, was <laughs> in the uh, Humboldt Park Lagoon uh, last year. You know, it's funny to think about that was a year ago because, It'd be really great to have a story like that right now. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it uh, just a simpler time, it feels like? (laughs) (laughs) As complicated as things were back then, we were able to focus so much attention in the media and the public on um, this, uh, you know, Loch Ness monster. But it turned out to be quite real and what a story the the way that it was was captured and uh and he was taken and, and named and baptized as chance the snapper also um it was a feel good story uh to a great extent we were at humble park with a lot of our colleagues to uh have a socially distanced party uh to see off jen white you know who's mm-hmm. gone to washington your the predecessor in that seat and uh you just look at that that lagoon there and that's the first thing you think of now <laughs> that's what you think of the humble park lagoon with all the history in <laughs> chicago will always be remembered as the place where chance the snapper was uh laura washington always a pleasure to have you on the program laura of course the columnist at the sun times and uh, political analyst for abc7 dan milopoulos We'll have you on again really soon, I'm sure, with this uh, story about PPP and everything else you're working on. Great reporter here at WBEC. You guys, thanks so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. My pleasure. And that's today's Reset. For the most up-to-date and accurate information on the COVID-19 crisis in Chicago and beyond, tune in to 91.5 WBEZ or go online wbez.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.